0: tomorrow is Father's Day. I'm going to admit right now, this is not necessarily a Father's Day message, but I want you to know, dads, we need to be leading the way in what this message is about. We need to set the pace in our home, in our community, at our workplace, wherever we are here in the church. We need to be the prime examples of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Now, I'm going through a sermon series entitled, five eternal the five eternal metaphors now these five eternal metaphors you may agree with me or not it is beside the point my understanding of these metaphors is simply that they are different than other metaphors like yeast and such that we discover in the bible because with these metaphors that i'm going to be preaching on there's five of them i'm going to take 10 weeks to go through them these metaphors It appears from scripture as if God, there is an eternal reality of who God is, say his love. And he purposefully created certain things like marriage that we looked at that last week. We're going to look at again tonight. He created marriage to reflect that spiritual reality. There wasn't a spiritual reality of love within the Godhead and this intimacy that his creation can have with him. And he just looked around and said, hmm, I wonder what analogy there is in my creation that could parallel this. But rather, I believe God instituted, created marriage to purposely reflect this relationship that the church has with Christ. Okay? Now we saw very clearly last week, and I only took a moment, how Moses, when he had the temple constructed, Moses did it according to what he saw. Not what he heard, of course what he heard, God told him, but it says what he saw. He saw the heavenly sanctuary and built the earthly sanctuary according to that. The principle then is the heavenly precedes the earthly when we're talking about these five eternal metaphors. The eternal concept of this intimacy that we have with Christ that will go on into eternity precedes marriage that we have here on earth. So it is merely a reflection of that. There's a story that I was told some years ago of an elderly couple the husband is in the hospital, and the doctor pulls her, out, pulls her out of the hospital room and confides in her. And he says, ma'am, I, I'm so sorry to, to tell you this, but your husband's condition is terminal. And he has a, somewhere between three and six months to live. And she says, wow, really? He says, yes, but there's something you can do. And she's all ears. And he says, if you are able to tend to him, if you're able to cook him three hot meals a day, and and I'm not just talking about any kind of meals, I'm talking about healthy, nutritional meals. So when you go shopping, you're gonna have to look at the ingredients and you're gonna have to study them and find out what is the absolute best. And I've got some papers here I wanna give to you and this is gonna take some time, but if you shop right and if you can cook him three meals, hot meals a day, if you rub his feet every night, maybe even in the morning as well, if you help him get dressed in the morning and go for a walk with him every day, help him in exercising, and if you can do these things consistently, I think he's going to make it. She's, wow. She walks back into the room. She stands there, and her husband looks up at her and he says, well, what did the doctor say? And she looked down at him and replied, he said, you're going to (laughs) die. Let me just say this. Marriages can go sour. They tend to drift. But I do want to tell you that when marriages drift, they generally do so very slowly. To the point where most couples don't even realize that it's happening. Think about that thought for a moment. And now I want us to step into this covenant relationship we have with God. And very specifically Israel's covenant relationship with God. I'm not going to read the whole passage in Ezekiel 16. I would encourage you to do to do so. It is truth that is between the eyes. And he uses an analogy. That, we're, that I'm going to read here that addresses it very powerfully. I'm going to be starting with, I'm going to read kind of here and there. Actually, you know what I am? I'm, I'm going to read the first eight verses. I was just going to read verse eight, but I'm going to start with verse one. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. In other words, Jerusalem before the conquest, okay, Jerusalem or Salem or Jebus, these are other names that it went by, Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. In other words, the Canaanites occupied you and you were birthed from them. You were birthed in paganism. That was the city itself. It wasn't always like that, but that was their beginning. Verse four. Is there a way to turn up these lights right here? Maybe, yeah. Is it possible or are they all the way up? If they're all the way up, then poor blind Pastor Michael, I'll just do my best here. Verse four. On the day you were born... Your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean. Nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or a compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by, and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew and you were naked and bare. Later I passed by and when I looked at you, now understand right now, it is shifting at this moment to the people of Israel. Later I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. That's a metaphor for I married you. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Skip down to verses 14 and 15. And your fame, as she grew up, and your fame spread throughout the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. Verse 26. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and provoked me to anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory. I gave you over to the great, excuse me, to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were shocked by your lewd behavior, your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians. This is when Assyria became a great nation. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too because you were in, you were insatiable. And even after that, you still were not satisfied. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants. But even with this, you were not satisfied. And then if you could skip over to verse 59. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Israel had committed spiritual adultery. Last week, I looked at four different things. Why perhaps in a physical earthly marriage, we might feel unloved that there might just, that that spark, that kindle of fire may not be there between husband and wife. And then we step back and saw how that might be the case in our relationship with the Lord. Honestly, there are some times in which we just don't feel God's love. And we ask the question, why is that? No, honestly, something I didn't say, and, and it could be very true, is just that we're physical creatures. Our bodies are part of the physical fallen nature of this universe. And our emotions aren't always on key. Stress, lack of sleeping. That, a lot of different things play into our emotions. And sometimes our emotions just get tanked. And, and we may not experience that romantic, on fire, love and passion for our spouse. That, that happens. The question, though, is what happens if that just continues on and on and on? What happens if that continues on? And on and on in your relationship with the Lord. And so we stepped back and we looked at these four different things and then asked the question: so, how can we not do that, but actually do the opposite of that? And we looked at four different things, and, and hopefully it was positive as far as building a greater and deeper love and affection for the Lord. Okay? So tonight. As we look at this concept of spiritual adultery, now we're going to look more at the negative aspect in marriage. And this happens. We call it unfaithfulness. Why? Because it is a breaking of the marriage covenant. It is a cutting up, it is a turning away, it is turning our affections and our love towards another. And this is what Israel did with God. From the time of Moses to the time of the Assyrian captivity, we're talking about 1450 BC, 1440 BC, and then 722, we're talking around 750 years of following God, but gradually over the last couple hundred, their hearts were led astray. It didn't happen overnight. They didn't wake up, the Israelites didn't wake up one morning and say, golly, I don't think I'm going to follow the Lord today. I think I'm going to worship an idol. That happened over time, and they were pulled into it for a number of different reasons. And so finally, Ezekiel is prophesying from captivity. It's in the late 500s BC. They're already in Babylonia. They've been brought captive. There's exiles. And he challenges them. This is why it has happened. You have turned away from God. You have committed spiritual adultery. In essence, they were seeking satisfaction in others and couldn't be satisfied. And so their answer was, I guess I just need to do it more. Maybe if I do it more, I will be satisfied. No, the very fact that they were doing it, actually produced that dissatisfaction. Church, we need to realize, at least in our relationship with God, the very thing that tanks that relationship, the very thing that quenches that fire is finding our satisfaction in something else. And the more we seek satisfaction in something else, guess how that's going to affect our relationship with the Lord? It's going to kill it. Now, we use the term idolatry, and I would venture to say that when we define idolatry as worshiping an object like silver or gold made in the image of a creature or something like this, very few people in our day would be committing that kind of idolatry. And they would say, Christians or people who say they're Christians but may not be, regardless, oh, I don't do that, so this sermon is irrelevant to me. Well, can I just say that idolatry is so much more than that. It is a heart that is turning away and being led astray after other things to the point where it captures our heart. It wins us. James 4.4 says this, you adulterous people. Understand, as James is writing, He's writing to the Jewish community. Most of them would be true believers in Christ, but just as in any church, not all of them are. They, they may think they are. After all, hey, they attend the local meetings every week. You know, they, they read their Torah. They try to follow God, but their heart is not with them. So he speaks to these people who are not true followers of Jesus Christ. And he says, you adulterous people. Don't, you know, listen to this, church. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Wow. It says there that if that happens if we are friends with the world that is hating God that is being an enemy of God It's not just a casual stroll through Central Park It's not just this you know hey you know I'm I'm just going to do my over my own thing over here and God just give me a minute as I engage this is this is a heart commitment and it is loving the world and it is therefore hating God. It is breaking covenant with him. It is turning away from it. Is It is having, wanting to have nothing to do with him. Maybe on the outside, but certainly not on the inside. This is what James is addressing. It strikes at the heart of any covenant with him. First John chapter 2 talks about the love of the world this way. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wow. That if I love the world, then that means there is no love in my heart for God. Actually, in Matthew 16, 4, Jesus called his Jewish generation an adulteress and sinful Generation, but we we might object at this point as as followers of Jesus. I, I you know what I don't live my life that way. Dink. And you just tuned out. Tune back in. It is so easy to say, well, I don't commit spiritual adultery. You know when I when I put the this metaphor together, you know I'm not doing that. Let me tell you what we might be doing though, because adultery just doesn't. It rarely happens overnight. It is a step by step pulling, drifting from the marriage and then a being pulled to the world and an opportunity arises, a relationship develops. It might turn it might be a one night stand, but generally it's a relationship. The heart has gradually turned and gradually embraced. Can I just ask you If it does not happen overnight, how did it even begin? Physically, the relationship started growing apart further and further, sometimes not even being recognized, or at least on the guy's part, not being recognized, okay? So we might object, hey, I'm not all the way there, but here is my question, are we flirting? Okay, so maybe you don't love the world. Maybe I don't love the world. But what does flirting with the world look like? You see, it holds our gaze too long. It fascinates us too much. It occupies our affections too deeply. It It leads us for any reason, any length of time, or at any level of commitment. I want you to be careful. Because that flirting with the world will eventually lead you astray. You see, when we flirt, in the natural, when we flirt, it's a way of showing affections toward the opposite sex without a stated commitment. I'll be honest with you, in high school, I flirted. I flirted. I may not have done it really well, but I flirted. Oh, Pastor Mike, bless your soul. I'm not a very good flirter. Maybe that's a good thing, but the, the truth is, I flirted in high school, and I, I'm so grateful I, I found my wife in college and had no need for that, but in high school I did. And I would engage in conversations with a, a young lady, and honestly, not much, but I did, and I realized why am I talking with her like this? It's, I'm, I'm coming across as if I'm interested in her, but she's not even a Christian. Why am I doing this? Because it makes you feel good, doesn't it? It is a way of communicating something you have no intention of following through with, or that you can't, or is off limits. When we flirt with the world, We are thinking in our minds, oh my goodness, I am not going to run after the things of the world, but I will entertain the possibilities. I will talk, I will engage, I will gaze too long. I will allow my affections to start getting caught up, but oh, not too far, not too far, because I'm a follower of Jesus, and, and I get this. And honestly, if we're not careful, all of us can do that, and we can engage in this flirting with the world and i want to just let you know that that flirting happens so subtly do you remember when the rich young ruler came to jesus the rich young ruler wanted to ask you what do i have to do to gain eternal life and so jesus started going through the commandments and oh boy was this rich young ruler he was rich but he was also young okay he did it tell you he was really young? So he was young. And so he thought he knew the word. He thought he was the stand up guy. I mean, after all, he's the synagogue ruler. Maybe he was more the synagogue ruler because of his wealth rather than any relationship with God. But he was a synagogue ruler and he knew the Torah. So Jesus, so he started throwing out some commandments. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've done all of yep. Yeah. I'm good. Jesus did not talk about greed. Instead, the rich young... Wow, Jesus. (laughs) Well, I, I need to let you know, I've kept all of these commandments since I was, like, gay big. And Jesus... Later on, it says, Jesus loved this man when he turned away. So I want you to know, Jesus probes with compassion. And so he says... Well, I tell you what you should do. You, you want to follow me. So here's what you're here's running in. Sell everything that you have. Everything. Sell even that teddy bear that you got growing up. Sell everything. And then take that money and give it all to the poor. The man was crushed. He had flirted with the world all of his life and he loved it. And Jesus, in essence, was saying, if you want to follow me, I'm sorry, but you can't serve two masters. You're either going to love the one and hate the other, cling to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, he didn't say that at that time. He actually preached that in a different message. So he taught the man this lesson in a different way. Sell everything you have and then come follow me. Now, that's not a salvation by good works, but the man realized there was something wrong in his heart. He had drifted so far from the one true God that he grew up learning and even to that day thought he was really a follower of God when he wasn't. He was held captive to the lusts of the flesh, the desire. For money. Do you remember the four parables of the soil? I'm not going to go through all of them, but remember the the the, the seed that fell on rocky ground. Do you, do you remember why it didn't it sprung up but almost immediately died? When the sun came out, man, it became crispy fries. Reason is because the roots did not go deep. There were too many rocks. When trials came, it really revealed the contents of the heart. I'm switching. Between metaphors, sorry. And the heart of that seed planted in rocky ground could not produce fruit. And it's a picture of an unbeliever. Though they say they believed, they believed only for a short while, and that is not genuine faith. They did not produce fruit. Why? Because of the rocks. Because of the rocks. And it prevents our relationship with Jesus from going deep or even having one at all. Though we think we might have a relationship with him. How about the ones, the seeds sown on thorny ground? They spring up, but then so do the thorns. And the thorns choke the plant. If you've done any kind of agriculture at all, planted any seeds, you realize that weeds compete with the, the, the plants that produce the fruit for the nutrients in the soil. So you need to get rid of the weeds. Otherwise, the weeds will win every time. You've got to get rid of the weeds. You've got to get rid of the thorns. And the thorns choked the plant out, and it was unable to produce fruit. And Jesus said those thorns are persecutions and they are wealth. And he said, careful, be cautious. Of, listen to this, the deception of wealth. Church, wealth is deceptive. There's nothing wrong with wealth inherently. There's nothing wrong with money, but it starts to win the heart. We start flirting with it. Follow me here. We start flirting with it. We start engaging it. It starts consuming us more and more. We're constantly watching the stock market, constantly wondering how much more money we're going to make. And it's, it's about getting and acquiring. And we might give a few dollars here and there just to appease our conscience or our guilt. But we have become seduced by the wealth of this world. Again, nothing wrong with wealth, but careful, because it can reach inside and it can grab your heart. It can allow you to flirt with it, play with it. Then it captures you and seduces you. And I'm using that word purposely, seduces you, because money can become your God. It can steal your affections. And in a relationship with the Lord... We engage, and I'm just using money as an example right now. We begin to make plans, making more money. We're investing, we're we're just, wow, great investments, and the money is coming in, and we're wondering, well, what am I gonna do with it? And wow, I can invest it here and I could spend it here and this vacation here, and and before maybe I can even retire. 10 years early and we have this I want to get rich mentality before we know it we have drifted in our from our relationship with Christ and money has now grasped a hold and held firmly to our affections and it happens so gradually and I can remember back in the day how many of you have ever seen my van Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm talking about my work van. Tim, you can put your hand to, Thank you. It, it's, I call it my Rustmobile, okay? It looks terrible. It's beyond my, I'm a paint guy, and it's way beyond my ability to repair. And it is like the worst advertising ever. I'm so grateful. I have only one account, and, and because that's all that I need right now while I pasture full-time. But, uh, Wow. The the, the the company that I do work for, they're totally understanding. They're, oh, There's Mike. I can see him. and I can hear him as he pulls into the parking lot. But it still gets me from here to there. Amen. No AC. I roll the windows down. I have four by four air conditioning. Okay. Four windows down. Yeah. Four by 55. Excuse me. Four windows down at 50. There we go. I knew I'd get it. But you know what? I remember back in the day, in which the business was doing really well. And I I would just think, one day I'm getting out of this van. And I still think about that. I can hardly wait till I'm out of this van. Maybe in something that's air-conditioned. That would be nice. But back then, I I entertained the idea of, you know, what would my new car look like? And there's nothing wrong with that. But I began to engage more and more on that type of vehicle. And I would see them... I realized that it began consuming my attention and my heart's passions. But what's worse was I had to step step back because I realized that my passion for Christ was competing with it. That's when the bells went off. That's when I realized I am flirting with the world right now. Did I go out and misspend my, I didn't. Was I being generous as, as much as I could? I was, but I was allowing money to seize my heart. And I'm grateful the Lord caught my attention. And, and if you're looking for a new car today, I am not preaching this against what you're doing. I'm not doing that, but I want to tell you what, this slide and movement and drifting away from our full, sincere, pure devotion to Christ is gradual. And there are times in which if you feel that there is a sin issue in your life, it might be good to someone that you can trust. Not someone that will placate you, but someone you can trust and just ask them, hey, do you see anything in my life? Do you feel as if my affections are being drawn away from the Lord? Maybe towards money or towards this or that, or this dream of a bigger and nicer home. And again, I'm not preaching against homes. You hear what I'm saying, what I'm not. So this gradual, this gradual movement is because of this deceitfulness of wealth. In Hebrews 3.13, it says, you know, because the Israelites in the desert complained and they were led astray from the Lord. And it's like, what happened to them? And the author of Hebrews says that they were being hardened by sin's deceitfulness that led them astray. That's the nature of sin. That's the nature of wealth when we're not handling it well and we're flirting with the world. We may not love the world, but are we flirting with the world? So I'm just going to wrap it up with four things I want us to look at here. Four passion killers. I think all of us who know Christ, want to be passionate for him and in love with him, and these passion killers will only kill the passion, douse the flames of affection for Christ, and lead us astray. The first one is compromise. And I'm just going to let you know that if we are in this process of compromise, there are times in which we don't know it because generally when we compromise, we toe-dip, right? Just like when you go into the pool, how cold is it in the pool when you toe dip? i tell you what, forget about the toe dipping when it comes to stuff like that. You and I both know you just got to dive in in the deep end. That's the way to do it. Okay, if it's freezing cold, maybe not. But otherwise, if it's cold and you want to just dive in, don't do it gradually. Dive in. But we, we, we toe dip, right? And we do that with sin, too. Not just our relationship, but the, we, we do that. With, we, we test it out. Oh, it's not that bad. Well, I, I thought the, consequence, the consequences were going to be worse. I guess they aren't. And as a result, nothing bad has happened. Okay, well, Lord, I'm really sorry that I, I did that. But the next time we face it, hmm, there were no consequences. It wasn't as bad as I thought. And I didn't go like, all the way in, whatever the sin is. I'm being tempted. to What's wrong? I'll just do it again. And it's not a one-time thing. It happens over and over, and it is a gradual moving away. Compromise, then, leads us astray. It will kill your passion. Success. Number two, success. How many of you are familiar with Psalm 51 or the story of David's sin with Bathsheba? and then setting her husband up so that he would be killed on the front lines of battle. David was guilty, both of adultery and murder. Wow. Now, he repented, but do you know why that even happened? If you read, that's, that's 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 10 is all about his successes how he conquered this nation and this nation, and he was prudent, and he was harsh where he needed to be harsh, but he was gracious where he needed to be gracious, and he ruled, and it was battle after battle, success, success, success. And then when spring came, when other kings go out to war to secure their borders, not to be bad guys and conquer, but to secure their borders, David stayed home, and his heart was unguarded. I'm all for success. I wish you success. I pray that the Lord would so bless you financially, so bless you with every project that you put your hands to, that when you try to do work on your car, it's done in half the time. Can I hear an amen on that? It always takes me two to four times longer. But man, I love it when you're working on your car and everything just works out and it's successful. I love it when marriages work out. I love, I love success and God's blessing in hand. I love that. But if we're not careful, success can actually set us up for going astray from the Lord. If you read Deuteronomy 8, this is what you find. When you come into your land and I bless you here and I bless you there, Don't ever forget me. Remember me. Don't say in your mind, I don't need the Lord. Because see, that's what success tends to do. So I wish you all success. But my greater prayer is that you can handle that success. And that that success, that you will see it and turn around and be able to bless others. Always be an avenue for the success and the blessing of God. God is going to prosper you so that you can give, not so that you can get. God wants your needs met in an abundance so you can pour it out, pressed down, shaken together, running over in your lap. So that means it's running over to those around you to bless them. See, that's what we want. Lord, bless me and, and bring me success so that I can then be a distributor of that to others. But success can blind you. It can set you up, it can be deceptive, be careful. Possessions and pleasures, I've already mentioned those. So I'm gonna move on to the the last one here. Now, There's others, I am sure, but I'm just focusing on these four. Weariness from suffering that causes us to shift into neutral. When we go through life circumstances that hurt, and we just come to this place where we are saying, God, please just stop the pain. Because we're hurting so much. Because life gets so hard. We, we feel we don't want to be, but we feel like that little hamster on the treadmill. It's like, is there not a break? Some of you haven't had a vacation in years. My heart goes out to you. I'm not saying that vacations are biblical concepts, but you know what? Three times a year, they did have to go to the temple. I guess that was a little bit of a vacation, a little bit of a break, and sacrifices for the feasts and such. But it's hard to just work hard every day over and over, and you're barely making it. On the one hand, you know, the Bible does say, give me my daily bread, okay? And we need to, we need to parallel that. We, we need to couple that, though, with this idea of saving. My idea, what I'm trying to say to you, is that we can be working so hard and we can encounter so many hurts in this world, so many discouragements, and they start adding up, we take a forced break. We just step back and say, you know what, God? This thing between you and I, I just need a break. It's hard following you. It's hard to do the right thing over and over and over. And God, where's the blessing? And you know we can have this argument with God. And I'm just, as a matter of fact, if you're having that argument with God, I'm not going to shame you, but can you do God and yourself a favor? And can you lose that argument, please? Because at some point we realize God understands our emotions. He gets that. Jesus himself had to go through trial and hardship. And I would venture to say he even lost his dad. We don't know that for sure, but it certainly seems like it from the scriptures. And he was a young man. How hard was that? And now it's his responsibility as the oldest guy in the house to provide for his family. That's hard. He was apprenticed by his dad. Jesus felt pain. Gaining over the loss of his dad, it probably took a while. It wasn't like, next day, okay, I'm good. Let's go. Jesus had to work through this emotionally as a human being. He understands your pain. He understands your weariness. But if we're going to get into an argument of God with God, can you please lose that one? Can you please come to that point where you recognize the silliness of that? Been there. Just so you know, speaking from personal experience, I've had these arguments with God. And in my weariness, realize God is good. He's not against me. He hasn't set these. I just want to. I just want to do. You know, it, God's heart. You might. Know, I. I. I spoke on Psalm ninety-one. Spoke on. Just. Just touched on it last week. That a thousand will follow your side. Ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. But there are sometimes. There's something that God wants to accomplish in your life, and there's only one way to do it, and it's to allow that harm to come near you, and there's no other way. And so God has allowed us, just like he did with Job, to go through some of these trials, and yes, to become weary. I am certain that Job was weary. And in his weariness, though, he didn't shift into neutral. He didn't say, you know what, I am tired of serving God and getting nothing in return." And he struggled. I'm not going to read to you the whole 40 chapters right now, but he struggled. And in the end, in this argument with God, God's voice went out. And Job humbled himself. And he said, How could I ever think for a moment that you were unjust? Your way is good. And he just rested In his pain, in his weariness, he just rested in God. And I'm going to assume that he allowed God to refresh him. That's where some of you are at tonight. You just need God to refresh you. I talked last week a little bit, being in the Word and in prayer, those aren't just duties that good Christians do. Those are those are things that will refresh and restore us. And you know what? Maybe it's going to take more than 10 or 15 minutes in the Word, and there are going to be times in which you need to carve out an entire morning. I don't want to scare you with that, but there are just times in which you have got to rest in Him. And in that truth... Because the devil's been speaking these lies to you and he's been, that's that's why wealth and sin is so deceptive. The devil plays them up and makes them look so attractive. We're drawn to them. But wow, the sin we engage in, it will bite you back so hard. Just rest in him. Allow the truths of his word to settle in your heart. I'm not trying to set the bar up so high. Wow, an entire morning, I could never do that. I'm just too busy. Well, maybe an hour on a day off, just, you know what, from eight to nine in the morning, after I've had my two cups of coffee, eight to nine in the morning, it is just me in the word. And I'm going to be turning to God in prayer and just let him refresh you and fill your cup up again. When God begins to do that, He will begin to help you identify where maybe you are flirting with the world. Many times we do it in the natural and don't even realize it. Same thing within the spiritual. We don't even realize it. Let God show you. In that time with him, let him show you. Flirting produces a spiritual apathy in us. It dulls our passion and fervency. It makes us spiritually lazy. And do you know what the answer actually is? Fight. You don't want to. You're weary. That's when you need to fight. I don't have strength. David was the same way. He was just wearied from this hurt because 600 of his men with him came back to their camp and the Amalekites had taken all of their wives and children captive and they lost everything. And they burned the city to boot. They lost everything. And they were about to mutiny and and kill David. And David got away. and, And all the scripture says is, and David found strength in his God. Tonight, some of you need to find strength in God right now, okay? Don't let another day go by. Just surrender to him and just say, God, I'm wearied by all of this. Give me your strength. Let the Spirit of God just minister to you. Maybe some of you, what you, need, you just need to go home and you just need to listen to worship music and engage your spirit with God again. Combat these lies. Can you stand with me? I want to pray for you. I'm going to pray that the Spirit of God will be speaking right to your heart. Because I don't know what your specific situation is, and guess what I don't need to know, but God knows. And I'm just going to pray right now, He's going to speak to your heart. Father, we're standing here before you. Father, maybe we have engaged in spiritual adultery, and we have walked totally away from you. Maybe we're not even in covenant relationship with you at all. And I just pray, Father, speak to every heart in that situation and cause the dead to live. Father, maybe we've just been flirting with the world. Just a little step here and there. Maybe, Father, we've just come to this point where the world looks a whole lot better because serving you has been hard and we it's, we've sacrificed so much. And yet today, Father, you still say, if you would come follow him, deny self, take up your cross every day and follow me. And so, Lord, that's what we do. If we have been wandering if we've been drifting ever so gradually, then God, I pray, Spirit of God, speak to our hearts right now exactly what we need to hear. Spirit of God, you just speak right now. Right now, God. Let your words call. Let your words woo us back to you that your words begin to breathe life into our wearied souls. I just ask you, Lord, as, as we're in this posture right now of surrendering to you, I just ask you, Lord, speak life, breathe life, encouragement and hope. And if tomorrow we're back on that treadmill, Lord, our focus is now on you. Because it is only in you, Jesus, that we have hope. It is only in Jesus Christ, who is the answer for everything that's killing this world today. Jesus, it is only you. And so that's who we run to right now. In our weariness, in our gradual drifting from you to the things of the world, right now, win our hearts. Speak truth into us, call us, win us, and may we rest in you, God, right now. Your love has never stopped. It still flows to us today. You have never given up on us. You've never turned a blind eye to our problems. You've heard every prayer. we look to you, God, as David found strength right now, just strengthen us, lift us up, turn our affections again to you. And Jesus, may every single one of us run to you. As the lost son ran to the father to embrace his love, we run to you, father, to embrace your amazing, eternal, infinite, no bounds love. Thank you, God. You're so good. Thank you, Jesus. Forgive us, Father, if we have strayed. But capture our hearts again right now. Thank you, God. Again, Spirit of God, would you speak so very clearly and so very personally to every single one of our hearts, those online, every one of us, God, very personally. For some of us, I believe, God, you're going to give us a scripture passage to go back to. Maybe it's that Isaiah 35 passage or Psalm 27 that we've been talking about. Maybe some of us need to go back to Joshua 1 or Genesis 1 through 3 that my wife talked on. But I just pray, Father, right now, may we choose you above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm just going to encourage you that if you would like prayer right now, I'm going to open the opportunity for you to be prayed over, okay? We can have others, but we want to pray for you, okay? Tomorrow when, that's Father's Day, when, during that day, give your dad a call, go visit him, whatever you can do if he's still alive. Honor dads. And dads, I'll conclude with this. Let's lead in this, okay? Let's lead in this passion for Christ even in the face of weariness or temptation. Let's run hard after him. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys.